The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Todd Wilson of Exponential led a track called Mobilize Disciples to Multiply Disciples. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. Now here's today's track session. About um, maybe five years ago, I came out of the marketplace 20 years ago. I'm an engineer by trade. I came into ministry kicking and screaming. Uh, The church that I'm part of was new at the time. Uh, the lead pastor was, hey, you should come out of the marketplace and come on staff. I want to be a church planting church. And I would say, what's that mean, you want to be a church planting church? And he would say, I don't know. That's why I want you to come help me figure it out. And I would say, well, how do you do that? And he would say, I don't know. we got to figure it out. Um, Brett Andrews is the lead pastor. Um, you've probably never heard of Brett. Anybody heard of Brett Andrews before? <clears throat> and here's the deal. Brett Andrews isn't on the stages of different places. Um, Brett launched a church 23 years ago, and the church that he launched, we've planted over 220 churches now. Not house churches, but churches that you can, there's over 30,000 people worshiping in the 200 and some churches at this point. That We're gonna talk about level five leadership today, and one of the characteristics of level five leadership is you, you almost don't know who the people are because they're not flashy, they're not, in Jim Collins' way, a level four leader is a bit more flashy. The level five is not quite as flashy. So when I came out of the marketplace, we were trying to figure out how do you, how do you plant churches. Multi-site wasn't even one, one of the conversation points yet. Um, fast forward in that time period, as we were starting to try to get our bearing on things, um, several different ministries were, were being born out, and we ended up starting this ministry called Exponential that I now uh, lead, which is on church multiplication. And about five years ago, um, we had a really good growth curve. Things were going well at Exponential, and I was getting a little bit bored. Like, I I think I want to do something else. And one of the other co-founders of Exponential said, he asked this question, what would we have to be doing that you would want to spend the rest of your life doing it? And I would just challenge you with that question, even as it relates to why you're here in disciple making. Like, what would you need to be doing that you would literally want to spend the rest of your life doing what you're doing? And I do life planning, this process called life planning. So for someone to ask me what I want to do with the rest of my life, you would think I would be able to just say, here's what I want to do. And um, let, let me give this disqualifier. My calling is to the local church. I love the local church. I came out of the marketplace, and for 20 years, um, I am still in running Exponential. I am a missionary of my home church that's planted the 200-some churches. They treat me as a missionary to run Exponential. So I, when I sound critical of the church, I actually love the church. My calling is in the church. I'd rather go back and make money in the marketplace, but I love the church just as a disqualifier. So when I was asked, what would you want to do with the rest of your life? I said, man, I can't tell you what I do want to do, but I can tell you what I don't want to do. I don't want to, and and I'm going to give you almost verbatim, I don't want to spend the rest of my career helping large, lustful, addition-oriented churches get bigger. I, I want to figure out how, you know, what does multiplication really look like? What's it look like to change the scorecard on what success is. So that put us on a path about five years ago of you have to ask the first question, if you want to shift from an addition orientation to a multiplication orientation, the first question we had to ask is, well, how would we know? Like, well, what is the difference? What's the difference between addition and reproduction and multiplication? And how would we even know where are we today in churches? So here's what we did. We, um, we started by just, if, if I drew you a graph, this is a number versus time. And I, if I draw you a graph that looks like that, what is that? Decline. It's in mathematical terms, 
you could put a minus sign. This is subtraction, right? Uh, if I give you this, what is that? Plateau. Plateau. So we'll just, if this is add, or I'm sorry, subtract. This is plateau. Do you see where I'm going? You can put a plus sign for add. It gets a little harder now. If I, you know, go, go kind of like this, and I'm going to give you another one. This is a big client, but we're going to go to multiply as the fourth out here mathematically. Between addition and multiplication mathematically, there's reproduction. <clears throat> reproduction is an excel in mathematical terms is an accelerated form <clears throat> of addition, if that makes sense. If I take, if I have two dice, and I, or I have one dice and I put it on the table, and I now go get a second dice, and I put a second dice on the table, I have added. I've not reproduced. Does that make sense? If I get a third dice and I put it on the table, I've, I've now added. I'm not reproducing. But if I take a dice and I put it on the table and I somehow could be God and split it into two, I've reproduced. It's what the human egg does when, you, when sperm and egg come together. It reproduces. One becomes two. The two become four. Now look what's happening. You're adding. When one becomes two, you are adding. And when two becomes four, you're adding. But it is an accelerated version of addition. Does that make sense? And here's what's really important principle-wise. When God said to Noah and to Adam, multiply and cover the earth, what was the form? It was reproduction. But reproduction in the form of it. it. It was addition, but it was through the mechanism of reproduction. How did it get to multiplication then? What's the distinction between reproduction and multiplication? Just think about it practically. You've got the picture in your mind that there's a difference in reproduction and addition. The, the way you add defines reproduction. Now, how do you make the distinction between reproduction and multiplication? Succeeding generations reproduce. It's succeeding generations reproducing. It's, re, it's turning the flywheel of reproduction. It's to continue reproducing. So all multiplication is, is reproduction on steroids. It's the, it's the long-term turning the flywheel of reproduction, right? Think about church in the US right now. This is what we're gonna cover, and I'm gonna give you a pre-taste of session two. How do we add in the U.S. church, in general, how do we add? We go after addition, okay? Go to the micro level. At the micro level, how do we add one at a time? Are we a family that reproduces? Or are we the dice that we put one on the table, we get another dice and we put another one on the table? and we get another dice and we put another one. Which form is it? Are we a family that reproduces from one to two to four, or are we taking dice and putting them one at a time on the table, Alex? And let me tell you how we're doing it. By having the best worship service in town, the best kids program in town, the best Sunday morning experience in town, the best monster outreach program in town, the best marketing campaign in town. Think about all those things, they're all good, and they all are a form of taking a dice and putting one on the table at a time. Mm -hmm. Look what happens when you take that approach. When addition is one at a time, a dice and a dice, and not reproduction, you cut off Jesus' mechanism of multiplication. Jesus' mechanism of multiplication is actually addition through reproduction. A disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple. Jesus gave us the most simple form in the form of reproduction that results in adding one at a time. And when you keep reproducing to the fourth generation through Jesus' method of disciple making, you have multiplication. Look what happens in the way we do church. When you add through programmatic means of marketing and outreach and Sunday services and the best worship services, 
you cut off, you can't get to multiplication because you're adding in an addition-oriented way that has no reproduction component. What happens is you just got to keep making those cultural Christians happy every week. If the way you're going to add is through adding cultural Christians one at a time and not making disciples who make disciples. Is that making sense? Yeah. This is why I said in the beginning, we realized at Exponential, I haven't even talked about church multiplication yet. Okay, Jesus' method of multiplication for the church is through re is disciple making his way through reproduction. We can't even talk about church multiplication if we aren't doing disciple making the right way. Make sense? All right, I'm getting you up here in a minute, Ralph. The, uh, here's what we had to do. We took these five mathematical things. The, these are the only five mathematical buckets that if you were to take the 360,000 churches in America and say, where are they mathematically in their, their thing? You gotta put them in one of these five buckets. There's not another mathematical bucket to put them in. All we did was we called this level one, this level two, three, four, and five. Okay, the way we draw the picture at Exponential, we do three overlapping circles. We call this subtraction, addition, multiplication. So here's where you get plateau. Reproduction is labeled one, two, three, four, and five. Is that making sense? So let me go ahead and hit. Where does multi-site fit? What is multi-site? Is it addition, reproduction, or multiplication? Addition. Think hard before you answer. Reproduction. You, uh, let's back up a step. You have one church service, but forget multi-site. You have one church service, and you add a second church service. Are you adding or reproducing? You're adding by reproducing, actually. Most churches. Most churches say, Let's take what we're doing in one and let's reproduce it into two. Who are the people that you, and what happens when you do that? You get a bunch of the people who were serving to still serve and you try to get some new people serving. So there's, there's a form of reproduction that's happening there, but here's the problem. The reproduction is limited. It's a limited version of reproduction because your first church service, let's say you've got three church services, so you've reproduced a second, a third, a fourth, but here's where it breaks down. The first service isn't reproducing another service, and the second service isn't reproducing another service, and the third service isn't reproducing another service. The mothership is reproducing the service. So it's, it's a limited version of reproduction. Does that make sense? So now let's go to multi-site. There's one church, that actually reproduces itself to a second location. And now it's time to reproduce the third. What's the, in the form that the, the normative is in the US church, how does the third reproduction happen? Another church. It's, it usually is a mothership or it's one elder board, and it's the dice analogy. One dice, two dice, three dice. We have not seen a model in the US church yet sustainable. Where, where one campus becomes two, each of those campuses reproduce and become four, each of those four reproduce and become eight. And here's the deal. If the model you're looking at can't do that, if it can't go from one to two, two to four, four to eight, then it is not a, it's not a what you'd call hyper-reproduction, it's not Jesus' way of disciple-making kind of reproduction, where one can become two, two can become four, four can become eight. So I would just say you have to caution yourself on any model you put in place for either disciple-making or, or, or church planting, where if one can't become two, and two can't become four, and four can't become eight, the experts on multi-site, the experts out there, and I'm friends with most of them, will tell you the very best multi-site churches in America, the best ones, will, will probably never have 100 sites. Because the complexity that gets built in, we call it sideways energy in engineering. It's, you end up spending so much energy on the sideways energy of that, that the amount of energy that's going into reproduction ends up going into the overhead of having to reorganize and do things, okay? So here's what we did. We took one, two, three, and four, just 
And we found that at levels one and two, 80% of US churches are at levels one and two, subtracting or, plat or plateaued. Now, don't, don't get too discouraged about that. It's called the Pareto Principle. It's everywhere in life. 20% um, of the people in your churches do 80% of the work. 20% of the people in your churches do 80% of the financial giving. Mm -hmm. it's, it's again, it's a mathematical thing. So the 80%, we don't even, think about this, I'm gonna, now I'm gonna depress you. Um, how many churches are still in existence today that were here 2,000 years ago? <clears throat> the answer is zero. There's not one local church in existence today that was around 2,000 years ago. The church we're meeting in, Church of the City here, it's a great church in the area. What do you think the probability is that this church is gonna be around in 75 years? It's hard to think about. Very, very small probability. The number of churches who live longer than 75 years, it, it's so minutely small that you would never build a strategy around trying to carry a church on for more than, for more than 75 years. The father of modern management, Peter Drucker, said, rarely in the history of mankind can you find an institution with a sustaining impact greater than 30 years. It's the S life cycle of an organization. So you have to ask the question, why do we spend so much effort trying to propel the legacy of our churches beyond the 50 to 75 year mark kind of thing in terms of how we measure success? So the fact that you get level one and two all churches, if, if, if your churches go through the same fate that 100% of the churches in history have gone through, you will experience plateau and decline. Because look what happens, the life cycle of, whether it's life or birth, the life cycle of everything looks like that. There's some slow, it ramps up. The only question is whether you're gonna get the blessing of having another peak that goes up but th this is what happens to the human body. I'm 50 now. I was really healthy till 50, and I got 50, and man, it's like it starts going downhill on the body kind of thing. <laughs> so churches, the, we need to not feel bad that 80% of churches are plateaued or declining. We need to try to help it, but the fate of all churches will be declined. That means that levels three, four, and five, addition, reproduction, multiplication, 20% of churches are in there. If you go really look, most would say that level three addition is about 16%, level four is about 4%, and level five multiplication is 0%. Okay? And, and so goes disciple making, so goes church multiplication, so goes church multiplication, so goes disciple making, both in disciple making movements and in church multiplication, we're at 0%. You can say we have a disciple making problem, why do we have a disciple-making problem? We have a leadership problem. And so with that, I'm gonna let Ralph jump into the leadership part. Let's pause and just say, ask if there's any questions. Just sure. and then, are there any questions so far? All right. Okay, I was pastoring a church in 1971, a draftee, didn't want to be a pastor, wanted to be, I thought an architect. I found out I wouldn't probably make a very good architect. But, um, kind of just did it because I was supposed to. And you know, I felt like as a draftee, you, you just march, do what you're told. I uh, came from a denomination of a lot of small churches, expected in the, the we had a, a room twice as size as an auditorium. And my prayer was that one day we would fill that place. And uh, we began to make disciples, and, and this is the kicker. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a number in a minute that you're gonna kind of go, whoa. And I was in this denomination while this number was developing, and nobody ever asked me, where are we getting all the leaders to start all these churches? And we were getting them by making disciples in the local church. Very few of our people have ever gone to seminary. Uh, we are the seminary. We took the seminary to them. So we started with 12 people, uh, building up a whole 66 people. I had a navigator background. My best friend had a navigator background. One thing led to another, uh, and almost by accident, he planted a church. Uh, fast forward to about three years ago, I started working with Todd, and I knew that I needed to be able to answer how many churches are out there. Uh, they got started by a little church called Hope Chapel in Manhattan Beach, California. And so I, all I did was, um, I've never been the president of anything. We've never been, we were in a denomination, so we couldn't organize as a mini denomination. We just kind of did whatever we did. 
And so I went through my contact list in my phone and started emailing people. Uh, you know, I know when you started your church, uh, how many churches did you start and how many did they start and how many did they start? And we came up with a number of 2,317. And four, four or five months later, I had to speak for Exponential. And by that time, the number was 2,322. And we're pretty sure that we don't know of all the churches. And they're all around the world. They don't use our name because we're not into that. Uh, actually, some of them in Hawaii have been there for the last 35 years. Uh, we called them Hope Chapel in Hawaii. And now the young guys think it's cool to change their name. And so uh, we, we're finding people who aren't part of our deal who now want to use the word Hope Chapel and guys who are part of our deal are wanting to change their name. I don't think any of that matters. What I think matters is that we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And if we do that, you almost cannot help but planting churches. And we were talking last night with uh, Bobby Harrington and a couple other people, and he'd been approached by a group that's doing a strong discipleship ministry in a college campus. And they're going, we raise up disciples who make disciples, and then they move back to another city, and they can't find a church where they fit. And I think the easy answer to that is, well, then they go start a microchurch, and we see what happens from there. And we're going to talk about that today, I think, in the third session about uh, people who are trained uh, by, through discipleship who become um, career people doing whatever they're doing to earn a living, put bread on the table, but at the same time plant a micro church that may or may not grow into something bigger. And so as we get into this, I, I want to just do a little linkage. I, I prepared a little uh, PowerPoint thing called Five Hero Making Practices. And if you've read the book, Hero Maker uh, by Dave Ferguson, or if you haven't, you need to. Um, this is really where it comes from. I'm finding my experience with Exponential is that they're explaining to me the things that we have done. Uh, we're, in one situation, I can identify nine generations of pastors. I, I know Jeff, I know Dale, I know Tom, I know Joe, I met Rob, and I have a photograph with the other guys in it, but I don't even know their names. The day I die, a lot of the pastors that would identify with our movement won't even know that I died. They won't even hear of it. And so, I, and to me, that's a, a merit badge. I, I'm thrilled with that. Uh, but this hero-making thing, I, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time teaching this because I, I was trying to think, which one story, which one person could I pick that's going to kind of talk about all five practices that we're going to look at? And honestly, I'm just going to have to kind of just, you know, it's a grab bag of different people. Uh, normally, if I'm with one of those guys, then I use his life as an example. But I just want to also point out the uh, exponential.org, the website has almost 100 free resources that you could get a hold of. Uh, you really need to go there if you're into making disciples and you want to take it further. Uh, that thing is a wonderful tool. Almost everything that Exponential does except the conferences are free and uh, it's been a huge blessing to me. I've been kind of doing this as a Lone Ranger when you're in Hawaii. Uh, you don't know what's going on in the mainland. I come back to the mainland. I'm shocked by the addition culture because in Hawaii, not just us, but Wayne Cordero, several others, uh, we were reproducing and, and, and for us, we were multiplying. And so uh, I'm coming to Exponential and they're telling me what I did and how I did it. And it's like, yes, I can categorize that. It's very good. And so I want to kind of pick up for where, where Todd was uh, with this thing about being a hero or a hero maker. Uh, I, I'm dealing with a pastor who kind of went sour on me. Uh, as a young man, way back in the 1980s, I discipled him. Uh, he came on our staff. He took a, a college career group of 300 some people and reduced it down to about 40. And he had authority issues. He, he had control issues. And, and so we thought we had worked those out of him. And years later, he comes back into my life and I'm working with him and I brought him to a, an exponential event and he was totally turned off by the concept of hero maker. And um, I, got, I, I caught him in a little bit of a conflict. I don't want to put my arm around him and, and he's done some pretty astounding things in his life. And I go, you gotta stop trying to be a hero and, and begin to make heroes out of others. And he acts real humble and he goes, oh, I have a hard time with the H word, you know. But the truth is, here's a man who everything that he does is like he's in competition with other people. And so he's trying to put people down. He's the anti-hero maker. And so I, I want to take it to the other extreme and, and be thinking of the person who's looking at everybody and going, 
what's what about them is better than they already know and how can I find that mine it and then lift it up to where they're embracing it and then they're going to go and do something about it and so as I look at this graphic that I put up here here's just a person who's lonely and feeling bad about themselves I just stole that uh, thing and use it as a metaphor for hero making so um, I'm kind of an introvert. I went through high school this way. I, I was kind of a lonely person, kind of feeling bad about myself. And then by my junior year in high school, I started to become actually a little bit almost on the popular side. You know, I had some friends and I, and I had, I was known and I was kind of just feeling good about myself. And so that would fit over there with a plateau, you know, it's, it, but then I graduated from high school and had to face the real world and other things happened. I see people, and, and I don't think I'm one of them, who they're, they're busy trying to collect people around themselves. They're, they're the hero in their own story, and they, and they do everything that they can to have a following. Uh, some of the, the friends that I had in high school that, you know, they were the big jocks, they were the big man on campus, and, and then all of a sudden high school was gone, and I followed some of their lives, and, 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 and they went to some fairly empty lives. Um, I see hero makers, uh, probably a lot of you in this room would be what I would call a level four hero maker. Uh, you're making disciples and you're doing a really good job at it and you need to be patted on the shoulder for it. But some of you have not figured out that you're really not a success as a disciple maker unless your disciples are making disciples who are also making disciples. And that, so that gets us over here to where we become <coughs> level five uh, multiplying hero makers. Um, I, can, I can tell you story after story of people that have been involved in my life who've gone on and I can tell you the story of at least one generation of their people and I know that the stories go on and I think that should be the norm. I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he gave us the Great Commission and, and we've fallen so far short of that and it comes really back to the scorecard that we've done for our church that you get the accolades for being bigger and better and so you kind of want to gather people around you. You want the best staff. You want the best worship leaders. You want to hold on to those people. Uh, it becomes kind of a magnet. Uh, there's this thing as a magnet going this way. I want to feel really good about myself, so I want to be the hero. Uh, but to maintain my hero status, I'm going to have a hard time uh, building other people up and sharing the glory with them. Uh, you know, I was with, um, well, I won't get into that. I want to go a little further. So I'm going to talk about five practices of hero making. These are all in Dave Ferguson's book. Uh, so I really, really recommend that you get that. So I like real quick in case you're taking lots of notes. Um, most everything we're talking about is in a free, e one of the various free ebooks at Exponential. So um, there's a book called Becoming Five that's free at the exponential.org forward slash ebooks. All of this stuff that on book the level five this. framework is this. There's another book called Multipliers, which takes all five years, the last five years of exponential content, all in one book. Um, it's free. And there's also, um, you, you can buy the book Hero Maker, or on Exponential's website, Dave and I did another book for free that's called The Legacy of a Hero Maker, which covers all of the, the five elements of hero making. So it's, there's a free version on our website, The Legacy of a Hero Maker. And my favorite book on the website is Todd's book, Multipliers. It's got an orange cover on it. And the reason for that is that before you read all the other stuff that's on there, you want to read this book because it summarizes everything. It does it really beautifully. Mm -hmm. We're actually, uh, one of my friends is translating it into Japanese Your right name now. Again? Uh, multipliers. Multipliers. And so we go from there. So practice number one, multiplication thinking. The basic concept is that we need more leaders. And so... What do we do? We, we pray. And the starting mindset is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 39. I have uh, been a pastor for a real long time. I'm 73 years old. And so I, I started actually started pastoring uh, junior high school kids in 1964, in the fall of 1964. Their names were Jeff, Dudley, Daniel, and Jimmy. We lost Jimmy in high school. And all these years later, I'm still tight with Jeff, Dudley, and Daniel. Uh, I, I think that really should be kind of our life story, that, that we, we've got story after story after story because we're involved in life after life after life. But I'll, I'll come to a time where there's nobody in my life, and, and I'm kind of there right now. There's a, a guy who sold my wife and I the house that we live in. We moved from Honolulu to San Diego. 
uh, in January this year. And uh, he's a gay man who's a lapsed Catholic. He's disgusted with the Catholic Church because of the, 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 the sex issues. But he's, he's a, a, a gay man in the closet. And uh, we're kind of working to just bring him back into a relationship with Jesus. And so once a month, my wife and I will go to lunch with him. And uh, the big victory in our life was uh, about two meetings back, he announced to us that he's gay. And both of us just instinctively go, we know that. And, and he goes, how do you know? And I go, Tom, it's called gaydar. And, and, he, and, and then he got embarrassed. It's like it, it, he, he didn't know what to do with, he calls us evangelists. He doesn't understand evangelicals. He goes, I, I don't, you, you evangelists that, that like gay people, I, I don't understand that. And, and so, uh, but we're really frustrated right now. We're struggling to find a church. We're in a new community. We've visited several. And there's nobody in our life that we're really pouring into except a once-a-month relationship with this guy. Uh, and, and so what do you do when you're in a situation like that? Well, you pray. Jesus said to ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up labor for the harvest. As a pastor, uh, we were used to starting about 1.7 churches a year over the whole tenure of my ministry. And we'd come to a point where there's nobody on deck. And uh, the way that we raised up pastors was that they, they pastored a home group and they raised up, they discipled guys to take their place and went and started another home group, went and started another. If they did three, then we start going, you could be a pastor. And uh, most of them bivocational coming out of the chute. A lot of them are vocational pastors because the church grew. But uh, that was our thing. But we'd come to a place where uh, we're, we're just, everybody's satisfied. Everybody's doing a home group. The church is healthy. Everybody's happy, but there's nobody on deck to go out and do the next one. What do we do? And so we start to pray, and pretty soon we start to notice a little action over here that we didn't notice before. Or we find a guy in the church who's a bit of a renegade uh, who starts doing things that we at first are going, mm, not so sure about that. And then we begin to look a little further and we see it bearing fruit. And, and, and so we go from there. There's a, a man named Charlie Mixon. He's nearly my age. He showed up in our church about 16 years ago. And um, had remember when people had the little rat tail? They'd have a little, little thing on the back of their hair. Long after young people quit doing that, this old guy comes to church with one of those. And he starts scoring on this woman named Mirsa Oka. And she's gone through a bad divorce. She's got a child. She owns a house, and and this guy has a, a, a big truck that says Duke's Handyman Service. Duke Kahanamoku was a famous Hawaiian uh, surfer and, and actually was in the U.S. Olympics, and, and so he picked up on the name, and so we're already looking at him going, you're scamming somebody else's name, you're scamming this woman for her house. And so I actually went up and had a really hard talk with the guy. And uh, he brags about it today, but I, but I just leveled him. I go, you know, you, you know, she's got about a dozen big brothers that are watching you really close, and you need to understand that. And I'm watching you really close. Do we under, you know? And so, um, but Charlie is, is one of my heroes. I, I mean, I just watched this guy go, and uh, some some young people in our church got the dumbest idea in the world. They wanted to go to Kenya and build greenhouses for an orphanage. And I was in the process of handing off the church, so I wasn't going to get in and, and say, this is really stupid, we're more than halfway around the world, 13 time zones, and then you got to fly five hours south from there. And, um, and so they snagged Charlie. Well, they all dropped the thing. Uh, they did the thing, then they dropped the thing, then Charlie picked it up, then we started a new little church, and Charlie joined with us, and, and so we started underwriting it. And I have an email that I got two days ago from Charlie uh, they just had over 700 people except the Lord in Kenya. And they're seeing some of the miracles that you guys heard about yesterday uh, because those things happen in other places. But the coolest thing is there are up to now nine churches that have been planted because this handyman started going to Africa as a freelance missionary. And, and, and I, I look at those things and all you can say is, this thing works. This thing works. That you pray and, and God comes out of left field someplace and and, and good things happen as a result. Um, practice number two is permission giving. Uh, Dave talks in his book a lot about I see in you, the, the, he uses the, the letters, but uh, the whole idea is I see something in you, I see potential in you. I find um, my identity by finding potential in other people. I don't find my identity in gathering people to me. I find my identity in sponsoring other people. 
there are some people I'm going to name a name because Todd's familiar with the name. I don't know if you met him, but Fumichito. Um, I, I used to go to a place called uh, Kobe in Japan. I actually still do go there every year. And I started working with a, a church there. I, it it kind of got born in my garage. There's some guys that are holding a little sing-along thing on Sunday nights in Japan in an English school. And, and we're fixing the brakes on my surf truck. And I go, well, why don't you guys just turn that into a church? And so they did. It was that easy. And uh, it became the biggest church in Kobe. And so I would go. They had a, a little room in the basement of a Taiwanese Presbyterian church for a, a mostly Japanese, uh, partly foreigner church. Uh, they do international church in Japan. And um, they have a room about as big as this. And, and we're in meetings for three nights in a row, and it's standing room only. I mean, it's tight, it's hot, it's nasty. And you only are allowed to come to the thing, because the church is quite big, if you're doing ministry in the church. Ofumichito is a new kid that got had a hard life in Osaka, got kind of saved off the streets, <coughs> is in the church. He's not allowed to come to the meeting. But he's sitting outside the door on two pillows with a, with a heavy coat and a blanket wrapped around him. Mm because he wants to hear what's going on and he sits outside in the cold listening three nights in a row. Oh, that looks like a hero in the making to me. Oh, today Fumi's been a pastor for 11 years. He's pastoring the largest church in a town called Nishinomiya in Japan. About 300 people come in there. Average church in Japan mm -hmm. is 27 people. Wow. And Fumi is in the process right now of starting their second daughter church that's launching from the mother. So they at least have found out how to do reproduction. I saw something in Fumi that his own pastor didn't see. And as a matter of fact, his own pastor discipled Fumi because Fumi turned into a really hot worship leader. And so he got a lot of attention for that. But when it came time that Fumi started to make noises about going out and planting a church, the pastor just backed away from him. The pastor is one of my dearest friends in life. He just passed away, but I love this man dearly. I still love him. But he did not know how to handle people when they started to do things that were exciting, that were in a way maybe competing with what he was doing. And so there, there has to come this point where uh, I, I'm able to find and identify, and then I'm able to follow through and help that person to envision their future and, and, and roadmap to their future. Uh, I'm trying to go fast here. Number three, again, is ICNU, you can grow. Um, and, and, and the whole deal here is that you train others and that you put systems in place for training others. And in, in our situation, it has to be relational. We, we, I think we only grow uh, through relationships. I've run, uh, I run, I came from a navigator background, so we were good at little books. <laughs> and uh, I, I met a man in Honolulu who um, uh, had a, a, a book that we all read and we just come back and talk about what did the Holy Spirit say to you while you were reading this book. He actually came from a navigator background too, but he kind of broke off from the workbook to you could curriculize anything. And I started thinking back to, I had a time in my life where I was pastoring a church of, of over 2,000 people in Southern California and I was always thinking, I wonder if I could run a business. I, I don't think I could, I was intimidated by businessmen in the church. And, and uh, I, I restored an old car. I, I got a hold of a, a Mustang convertible from the, uh, the 60s, and I restored it, and I sold it, and it did pretty good. And then I, I picked up a, a rusty old Porsche, and I started doing body work. And a guy in my church shows up and says, hey, I heard you're interested in this. I want to teach you how to do this. And uh, he was painting Ferraris. That was his deal. And so he's a real high-end guy. and. And he goes, I'm going to teach you some stuff, but you got to read this book first. And then you got to tell me what you learned from the book. And then we get hands-on, we get dirty, and very quickly he, he, he put me into a business. I, I started doing this. I'm pastoring this big church, but I'm running this auto restoration thing on the side. It was, it was a funny thing, but, but he discipled me as an auto body man and actually taught me how to paint cars. But, but he was able to take almost, I mean, who, who could take auto body and, and, and use it as a discipleship tool. Uh, we weren't doing anything spiritual at that time, but it taught me that if I get into a relationship with people, and, and our primary deal is that we read stuff together, and we teach theology this way, we teach 
business this way. We teach church management this way. We teach life this way. Uh, we, we read stuff and then we, we press three questions. What did the Holy Spirit say to you while you were engaging this? Um, what are you going to do about it? And what can I do to help you? How can I come alongside of you? And so um, there, there's this thing of, of making progress by working through a relationship that's building and it's supporting and it's turning somebody into something uh, that they're not already. Number four is, is gift activation. Again, I see in you. This one comes out to I believe in you and, and it send as the Spirit leads. Uh, you commission, you affirm, and you bless the efforts of others. John Honnold came to me uh, as a probably a 19-year-old a long time ago, 1983. He's kind of cocky and arrogant. He's already as a as a uh, he was a hotshot in high school football player. He was a model for the uh, Liberty House, which is a chain of department stores in Hawaii. Uh, he was kind of the cat's meow in his own eyes. Uh, ended up leading worship in our church one night. It was horrible. It looked like a Waikiki nightclub act. And, and, and so uh, my deal with John that night was to go up and go, well, that was remarkable what you did. And he kind of gets all puffed up. And I, and I go, it sucked. Um, it, it, it wasn't worship. And, and so here's the deal. If you want to lead worship in our church, you sit in that chair for the next six months and you, you assess what are those people doing that I don't know how to do? And you figure it out and we'll give you another crack at it. Sometimes that's what you do. But the day that I met John was our fourth Sunday as a church. We'd been meeting on a beach for three weeks, couldn't get a permit, it was against the law, policemen coming through the parking lot. And we finally got to rent a building in a park. And after church that day, this guy comes up swaggering and goes, hope you don't mind, I've been knocking off your sermons uh, I teach them on Thursdays at, at uh, Windward Community College. And I, I just kind of deadpanned him. I looked him in the eye and go, keep that up. You're going to be our college career pastor. <laughs> and in six months, he was. <laughs> we hired him. And John uh, was with us for a long time, was the second best worship leader we ever had. Uh, went out and planted a string of churches, started a church in Kapolei, Hawaii. They got a church in Thailand, they got several in the Philippines, they got churches in Okinawa, and they got churches all over Hawaii. I'm proud of John. And then about eight years ago, he blew a tire. He just almost ruined his marriage. He got involved with another woman, never slept with her, but he says, I'm an adulterer. Uh, it was in my heart, I'm an adulterer. And he blew his marriage up and then spent a year patching it up, uh, went through an incredible amount of counseling that he put himself through. Uh, comes back to his wife, wins her back. Uh, they go around and talk about this as, and how good their marriage is. And, and so uh, there are people in Hawaii who won't talk to John. Some of them are my disciples who won't talk to John. They don't understand grace. And, and, and John uh, went out and, and started a church in the house. Uh, I encouraged him to. He was, he was a part of a denomination. Uh, they wanted to make him jump through the same hoops he'd already jumped through. And I go, you know what, just forget that. Let's just go do this. And so he started and he, and he got a job doing funerals for funeral homes. And now that he's paid by the church, he's still doing funerals because there's such an opportunity for evangelism yeah. and disciple making. So he, he's still doing that. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I got John now. Um, I, I'm working with groups in, in, in the, what's called Kansai, which is Osaka Kobe. Uh, we have a pretty strong footprint there. And we started a bunch of churches in Tokyo area. And so I took John on a trip with me, introduced him to everybody. And I've got John doing a series of like seven Zoom calls in the autumn, 14 calls actually, seven with the Tokyo guys, seven with the, the Kansai guys. And then he'll do the same in the spring. And then we're gonna go there and hold two mini exponentials and teach that stuff. And uh, they're actually going through Todd's book, Multipliers, that's why it's being translated. I, I think that there has to be this place where as the Spirit leads me, I'm gonna find a way to commission you, to affirm you, and then to bless your efforts. And, uh, and, and I'm blessing John's efforts now because this is going on tape, and I'm gonna make sure that he hears about it. Um, you just find ways of doing those things. And then uh, the last thing to me is, is uh, kingdom thinking. Uh, the finishing mindset is that leaders exist for the kingdom of God, not for me, and that you release your disciples. That, that you know, in our experience, uh, we've started churches that ended up being Baptist, and I came from a Pentecostal background. We started churches that were Calvary chapels, that were vineyards, 
Uh, we started a whole host of independent churches that don't use our name. Uh, we started a, a United Methodist Church. Uh, one of our guys right now, Todd was teasing me last night about, I, I, I should write a book about it was worth it, you know, like even though. Because I, I, I can tell you a whole bunch of guys that blew a tire, a whole bunch of guys that, that kind of went off and did things that probably not more than 10, but the, those are the stories that stick out in your mind. But one of our guys is, just became the pastor of the oldest church in Hawaii. Uh, it's in a really liberal denomination, and uh, he's a real conservative guy. He's, he's one of us, and, and they, they actually bent their bylaws in order to hire this guy. Uh, I, I think that's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful thing, but I, I don't think that you can do kingdom business with a selfish mentality. You can't do kingdom business as a hero. You can only do kingdom business as a hero maker. Uh, the church doesn't belong to me. I, I think one of the best things about my life that that I look back and go, this was a formative thing. A lot of I, I got mentored by a lot of wonderful people, and I thank God for them. But I I, I look back and I think, that in the in the wisdom of God. He picked an introverted, kind of stupid kid that wanted to be a, an architect and told him he had to be a pastor. I knew when I was a very young boy that God had called me to be a pastor and I hated it. And when I finally gave into it, it was it was almost cynical. It's like, okay, I'll just do what I'm told. And I went to a Bible college and everybody there was all rah-rah. They were going to go out and change the world and do whatever. And, and I'm just going to, you know, I, I, I'm getting ready to write a book, I think, called I don't know what it would be called, but kind of essential New Testament church planting. Because what we really had, I talked to somebody yesterday, I guess it was Brett at the table, and he told about some guy that had interviewed me and one of our staff members, and, and he said the, the, the person who had done the interview was telling Brett that there was this conflict between me and my staff member, and I'm not sure who it was, I don't remember the interview, but he said that that person kept wanting to put form to what we did and, and structure to what we did. And I kept reverting to, well, it's just the Lord did this or just the Lord did that. And and I, and I, I think you got to kind of come to that point where it's just, I, I'm just going to do what I read in the, in the New Testament. He says, go make disciples. He says, uh, ask the Lord of the harvest if you don't have anybody to disciple. Uh, you know, uh, wait till the Spirit comes and brings power into your life. Just wait on God and let it be a God thing. But on the other end of it is don't get caught up in ownership. You know, I, I, I don't ever want to be caught uh, branding anything. Uh, we've intentionally not branded the name. A lot of our churches use the name of the church that I pastor, uh, but most of them don't. And the ones that do are somehow changing their names. And I, that's fine because they don't belong to me. They belong to Jesus. And right, right. until you get that one settled, you're not going to get very far. Anyway, I'd like you to do this. We've got... Um, about 17 minutes left in this session. I'd like you to take about four minutes. So this is like one-on-one. -on -one. And I want you to turn around and, and I want you to say to each other, here's one thing that the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart in the last hour. While Todd was talking or while I was talking, just one thing that, the, that you're going to take with you and hopefully take with you for the rest of your life. And then we're going to come back together and do some Q&A. So four minutes. Before we, before we do Q&A, I'd like for two people to just share this is something that the other guy told me, or the other woman told me. You know, without acting like a hotshot, I want to say that that's the difference. And, and I don't think that everybody, I, I want to say this in a very careful way. I think we could move from, I moved from level two to level four for 12 years. And then I moved to Hawaii and God gave us such a big goal that the only way we could get there was if I discipled pastors who also discipled pastors. But in, in California, I was level four. We, we, were, we were planting churches, but I had a hand in everybody's budget and everybody that went out the door, I spent weeks with them personally. No matter who had discipled them, I would then work with them on, on the way out and then after they went out. And a lot of people are going to get to where they can plant a bunch of churches, but they're going to have to have, because they're just their emotions are, they're going to have to have a certain measure of control. It's going to take somebody who could just go, well, that's the Holy Spirit's business. You know, at some point, I, I don't, I got to just 
live my life. And, 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 and that's, I think, is the, the dividing line, the control issue between level four, the three and four. As a hero maker versus, you know, a, a, a disciple maker, I think that's there, but as, as a pastor who wants to reproduce. Somebody else? What, what, did, what did your friend say? The, uh, I want to be careful in saying there's not a model of level five. Uh, what, what we did was looked for the fruit of where you see it. So what we have to be careful about is there's always the possibility that the level five flies under the radar in a way that there's things going on that you don't see. So I, I don't want to say there's not one. Um, I should have been introducing Ralph when, um, when we were pulling together the level five and looking for things. Um, Ed Stetzer concluded that Ralph's movement was at level five. We would put Ralph in the level five category at this point. And the distinction would be, a distinction between four and five is that Ed Stetzer concluded of Ralph's movement that they would have to put a strategy in place to stop the multiplication from happening. That it, it okay, the church that I'm at has planted 220 some churches, we're level four. And the reason we're level four is we're still programmatic. We're, if the lead pastor and I both died, it, within a couple of years, we might not be planting churches. It's not so deeply embedded in the DNA that, that it would keep happening. In Ralph's movement, it's in the DNA. It, when he says we're not really sure how many churches there are, it's because there's a spontaneous part to it. So when you move international, absolutely, you can the characteristics of level five, you can find. Shadonke Lewis or Johnson, who opened up the, the conference, will end up putting out. I got the blessing the other night. We did four hours of interviews with him to try to understand what they're doing. And uh, he, Shadonke, actually affirms in the next section when we do the three dimensions in the next workshop, it's what they're doing overseas. And it's absolutely a movement thing happening. So I think we probably understand the characteristics that need to be in the model. It's just there's such barriers for us in the U.S. on how I, I should, we don't have to have barriers, but the way we're doing it's creating barriers, and we'll we'll really get into that in the next session. I don't even understand how you can say that you've planted 200 some churches, and if you and the pastor were to die. But it's not deeply embedded. It's got to be deeply embedded. Here's, here's why. Wow, it just blows my mind. It, it, let, me, let me just take a minute. To, I should have done this on, on the beginning. Um, level three, addition orientation, the 16% of churches that are there, sociologists will tell you you've got to get 16% of any, any group behaving a certain way that that becomes the new norm. If, you, if I can get just 16% of you in this room starting to quack like a duck right now, all of you will probably quack like a duck. It's a 16% kind of number. It is not by accident that the level three scorecard of the U.S. church is 16%. What we've got to do is, is get the level four and five up. Now here's what, here's what happens. Um, we convened about eight years ago um, a group of 10 or 11 megachurch pastors. You'd know all their names, prominent churches, leading networks, um, just together for a retreat. Um, we wanted to see what their big issues were, no agenda. And here's what happened. We went around the room for the 11, and with no agenda, asked the question, in your life right now, your family, your personal life, your church, your community, what is the biggest burden you're carrying right now? The first leader said, oh, it's easy. I planted my church 20 years ago. God blessed it into a mega church. We're doing multi-site. We're doing externally focused. And there's not enough years left in my life to just keep growing this thing bigger. I'm interested in, basically what he was saying is, I'm interested in getting out to level five. We went to the second megachurch pastor in the circle. He said, that's mine. We went to the third. He said, that's mine. 11 out of 11 megachurch pastors. And they could have said anything. They could have said my budget, my staff, my marriage. 11 out of 11 national megachurch pastors said the biggest burden of my heart is really what they were saying is I want to move from three to five. And so we asked a second question. We said, what's keeping you from doing it? You're like the influence leaders in America. You've got money, you've got a platform, you've got what you need. Why aren't you getting there? And here's what they did. The first guy said, oh, it's easy. 
I have an $11.2 million building debt. For me to start releasing people, right. I'm gonna lose the people that are funding me on my building debt. We went to the second megachurch pastor. I'll never forget the number. The second megachurch pastor said, oh, it's easy. It takes 927 volunteers to run our children's program every Sunday. How in the world can I get my children's staff to be releasing people beyond the walls of the church to do stuff, which is a level five characteristic, when they have a hard time filling those 927 spots? The third pastor said, oh, we're doing multi-site. I get these guys into leading the campuses, and they want to go plant churches, and then we lose momentum. It's always my best staff that want to go when we're doing the level four and trying to do the level four and five thing. Here's what happened. We went around all 11. If you can picture a magnet at level three right here, just picture there's a magnet. What do magnets do? They attract. Okay. Now picture this. The very things that all these megachurch pastors were saying got them to level three. Great buildings, great programs, great staff, great children's ministries. All of the things that got them to level three, magnets work both ways. Okay? Every one of the things that are part of the formula for growing a big church, and I got bad news for you. You can actually grow a mega church in the United States and not love Jesus. If you got the right wiring, there's a formula to do it. And you don't have to love Jesus. It's really scary, actually. Okay? The formula is the level three. Okay, level three is represented by the largest, fastest growing, most innovative churches. Who doesn't want to be on that list? That's the scorecard of success. And the bad news is this. You get trapped in that operating system, and it will forever hold you captive back. So to answer your question, why are we level four? You can get to level four. You can be at level three, and you can programmatically put things in place. You can start tithing your first fruits to church planting. You can start having an intern program. You can start doing things that still have what Ralph would call control. They're controlled because there's a group of people that make a decision to do certain things. If you were to, we desperately would like to be at level five. We don't see the spontaneous part of people in our church just going to plant churches. It's still a centrally controlled. We put 12% of tithes and offerings in, all capital campaigns. We have an intern program. I, the words I would keep using are program, 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 program. We are programmatically planting all kinds of churches making us a programmatic level four church. But as soon as a couple of leaders go away, programs come and go. Programs are at the mercy of leaders. We, we could, a couple of us die, and if there's not other leaders to pick up the mantra, the programs would die. Does that make sense? Sorry for such a And In saying that, it's, you know, in, in my experience, four times we've given away 20% of our congregation on one day. Um, the, including the first church we ever started. That was the liberating moment for us. When we did that, we actually grew that day. Uh, we grew more than we gave away that day. So that set us free. And, and then we found out that if you give, you receive. So the, we, we actually grew by, by doing this. That's, that's the mystery that these guys have yet to learn. Over here, where his pastor is, his pastor is a, just a wonderful, godly and far more responsible adult person than I am. I, I, I'm just able to go, not my problem. And, 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 and Brett is just more responsible than that. And, and I always, I'm really, this is very important to me because it's easy to look at this and, and go, well, we want to win. We want to be level five. Well, some of us winning is going to be level four. That's exactly, I'm not trashing level four. Yeah. We need to, look, 4% of churches are level four and five. If we can get 16% of churches to level four, eternity looks unbelievably different. Like, it's not, it's not bad to get to level four, but now we link it back to disciple making, okay, and, and back to the control part. We joked about the book last night of Ralph writing a book on it was worth it. Here's the reality. He could name 10 people that he's discipled that have been train wrecks. And guess what? 10 people discipled 
is four times more people discipled than the average pastor in America will disciple in their career. Okay? So to get to eight or ten train wrecks, how many people has Ralph Moore discipled? Hundreds and hundreds. Now think about how messy it is. Part of Ralph's deal on the relational thing, you got to let go of the control. You got the Apostle Paul, he cared about the people, but he's, think about going, moving on from place to place and the messiness that's being left behind. Part of what constrains us to level three and four, level three is a franchise model. McDonald's can win because there's 173 things on the checklist. The church at level three can win because there's 175 things you do to be successful. Okay? It's control. Level four is still control. Level five is chaotic, crazy. It's why it starts with prayer and fasting when you're listening to Shinanke, because it's nutty, crazy, persecution, chaos. Shinanke is just not going to worry about the stuff that we control. <laughs> like, he's not going to worry about it. He's going to let God be in control of it. And that's how this idea of Ralph writing a book on it was worth it. Like, it's worth it to let go of the control. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.